from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. The things that are going to stop us from achieving net zero as fast as we need to, is land near the top of the list? Or do you think this is just, it's a reshuffling of how we use land, but not a big problem? I really just don't believe that the market has digested the public acceptance and siting and environmental permitting risks to net zero scale renewables and transmission. This week, travels through the land of land. So before we get started, I wanted to highlight another podcast that I like called Reversing Climate Change. It's produced by the folks at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace startup. They've had a bunch of really interesting and super diverse guests on it from Pulitzer Prize and James Beard awardees, a MacArthur genius, novelists, musicians, TV personalities, and a whole bunch of scientists, entrepreneurs, policy scholars, and more, all working on various shades of climate change and carbon removal. Their topics are really interesting and broad. They range from NFTs to vanishing foodways and the fight to preserve them. They include Bangladesh's post-cyclone war of independence against Pakistan, how winemaking is coping with climate change, Mark Fisher's work on hauntologies, which is not a word that I knew before, as applied to carbon removal, uh, obviously the latest on soil science, which is relevant to what Nori does, and, and a whole bunch more. It's a really broad and, and fascinating show, so highly recommend giving it a listen. Once again, produced by Nori, it's called the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So in the category of things that I don't think we talk enough about as it pertains to decarbonization, there are a few items that are near the top of my list. One is battery minerals, as evidenced by the episode a few weeks ago with Kurt House from Kobold. But I, I think actually emerging at the top of the list for me is land. As you know, my job at EIP is to invest in revolutionary technologies to solve the biggest problems with climate change. And over and over again, I'll learn about some new solution that has enormous technical and economic merit in a vacuum, but where I'm left with the same set of core questions, which are, you know, where will we do this at scale when we're trying to get to gigatons of impact? What landscapes might that transform? What will it displace on those landscapes? How might geography be the barrier to global impact for this particular technology pertains to new sources of energy generation and carbon removal and fuels production and all sorts of other things. And it so often comes back to land. So that's what we're going to talk about today. With me for this one was a familiar voice. Andy Lubershane is my colleague at EIP. He's our managing director of research, and he's been cooking up quite a tale uh, on how land will be possibly the factor that reshapes and possibly slows down the energy transition. So here's Andy. Andy, welcome back to Catalyst. I'm so happy to be back. All right, so I often do not re-listen to the episodes that we post on this podcast, but um, to the few that I have re-listened to, I've discovered an annoying tick that I have, which is that I tend to start every conversation with some version of the same question, which is like, let's start with the big picture. And then I go on to ask some question. And I've realized that uh, you know, in most of these episodes, the big picture that I'm talking about is in the grand scheme of things still pretty small. But 
this time, let's talk about the really big picture because we are going to talk about land and the role of land in the future of energy and climate. Uh, but I know you have a good riff where you wax historical on the the sort of role of land in our past as humanity. So let's start with the really big picture. Tell me about <laughs> land. Yes, happy to provide a history of humanity and land from possibly the world's least informed historian. Um, so take this with as many grains of salt as you have nearby. But so think way, way back to around 10,000 years ago uh, when humans invented agriculture somewhere in that fertile crescent. And at that point, we got everything from the land. We got all of our energy from the land and all of our stuff from the land. Um, and largely in the, in the case of energy, that meant we were getting energy from photosynthesis. And, you know, photosynthesis is amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle. Um, but if you think about the efficiency of photosynthesis and biological metabolism, it's actually super inefficient. Um, as in, it's, it's difficult for a skeptic like me to believe in, you know, some, something like intelligent design in any way, because there's no intelligent designer in the world that would come up with a system that is so inefficient. And, you know, the way that that early humans got uh, energy from photosynthesis uh, was obviously feeding ourselves, but also in the form of the original horsepower. So we would have, uh, you know, photosynthesis, solar energy, uh, creating grass, and then horses would eat that grass, and then the horses would do useful work for us. And if you think about the total efficiency of that chain of solar energy to horse useful work, it's way less than 1%, probably less than like 0.2% conversion of solar energy to stuff we wanted to happen. Um, and we'll come back to this, I think, later in the conversation. But compared to compare that to solar photovoltaics today, um, which actually is not all that great from an efficiency standpoint. I mean, solar PV is often derided as being pretty inefficient, you know, less than 20% typically conversion of sunlight to electricity. Um, but the total efficiency, if you take solar PV and then run that electricity through an electric motor to do useful work, it's on the order of probably 15 to 20%. So uh, the upshot here is we need like 50 times less land today to get the same amount of energy, useful work done from, from the sun. Yeah, that's sort of a key point, which is the the reason we care about the con conversion efficiency of sunlight basically mostly does come down to land. It comes down to cost as well. Like The reason we care about efficiency in PV modules is a combination of of land or space, which is most relevant in the immediate context if you're trying to put solar on a rooftop, but more is relevant as we'll talk about in the broader context when you're trying to site like, you know, hundreds of gigawatts of solar. Uh, but it also affects like the total cost of delivered electricity because the more land, the more space it takes to deliver the same amount of electricity, the more other stuff you need, the more balance of systems costs you have. Anyway, the point being, like a lot of what we care about uh, in in conversion efficiency comes down to how much space does it take to convert a certain amount of energy into a certain amount of useful work. Right. I mean, we have been fortunate for a couple hundred years now, and we haven't had to think about land quite so hard. But early humans thought about land all the time. It was really all they cared about. And then one of the, the kind of first real energy revolutions was the invention of wind power in the form of mills and sailboats. And mills were nice, but really it was like cross-oceanic sailboats using wind energy that was kind of the killer energy app, the first killer energy app. Um, at least it was uh, at that point for Europeans who, you know, 
used all this new energy to do what they've been doing for you know, uh, millennia before, which was go and look for more land and conquer more land because that's what they considered so essential to getting all the energy and stuff to run society. Um, you know, Europeans had been fighting over the same land for a couple of thousand years at this point. And, you know, infamously and, and atrociously, they went out and they conquered land that was occupied at the time by uh, Native peoples and also enslaved people um, and created this, you know, transatlantic slave trade which from their standpoint, you know, again, completely amorally at the time, immorally was enslaving people for more energy um, because that's what they that's what they thought they needed. So, you know, I guess that brings us to uh, the last 200 years, which was this really anomalous time in human history when we didn't have to think so hard about land. And that came from this big unlock of finding fossil fuel underground, this incredibly concentrated source of energy that did have to do with land. I mean, fossil fuel, different forms of fossil fuel are, are somewhat concentrated geographically around the world. Um, and we had to figure out how to harness that fossil fuel in the form of steam engines and then later on uh, turbines and electrical generators. But, you know, fundamentally, compared to how humans had thought about land in the past, fossil fuel separated human energy needs from the land. And if you think about the history of the last 200 years, it's really a history of taking fossil fuel and trading it for stuff from the land, all the other stuff we want, at just an extraordinarily accelerating and kind of ruthless rate. Right. Okay. So here we are then today. We've had the benefit of spending a couple hundred years mostly extracting extremely concentrated sources of energy from underground. And now we're headed into this brave new world where we're trying to decarbonize the entire global economy and replace, in many cases, a lot of those fossil fuels with other things. So what you and I have been talking about a lot is the role that land may play again. And so is your, is your sort of fundamental premise here that we had to care a lot about land in the early days? We've had this, you know, historically brief period of time where we haven't had to care so much about it, and now we're heading back into a period where it's going to come to the fore again. That's that's it essentially. Um, I don't think we're going to go back to caring quite about land in the same way we did, you know, in the early days of agriculture or you know in the, uh, the in the Middle Ages. But I do think one way you can conceive of the energy transition. One way, you know, I've been conceiving of the energy transition more and more is kind of reversing the trade we've made for the past 200 years. So instead of always trading cheap fossil energy for more land and more material, we're going to be starting to make trades where we have to we have to use land and give up some land and some material in exchange for low-cost clean energy. And there's a bunch of examples of this. And I, you know, the more you and I have been talking about this, the more I've been looking, the more you, you start to see out there. So let's run through some of those examples. I think the obvious one, but also probably it's funny, it's it's both the obvious one and the one that I think both you and I agree like people are not paying enough attention to, is the land impacts, uh, requirements and barriers that are going to be faced by converting a big portion of our electricity generation from fossil fuels to mostly wind and solar. So just walk through the kind of land, the the ramifications from a land perspective of doing that at large scale. Right. So, you know, one of the, the first thing most people think about when they think of wind and solar in terms of their constraints is their intermittency. And that's true. It's intermittency is a big challenge for wind and solar. But like you said, in a way, the more 
obvious thing uh, when you look at a wind farm or a solar farm compared to a coal plant is actually how much space they take up. So, you know, it, when you look at some of the the more recent uh, and really sophisticated and excellent studies of getting to net zero carbon, not just in the power sector, but economy wide over the next 30-ish years, one of the consequences is, you know, you often end up with very high levels of wind and solar penetration in electricity supply. And, you know, typically that takes up on the order of, and I'm being US centric here because most of the studies that I've I've looked at are, are focused on the US and North America, you know, that wind and solar takes up something like 5-10% of the total uh, land in the, the continental, you know, 48 states, which on the one hand doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually, it is a lot. I mean, that's an incredible amount of space taken up by energy production compared to today. And, you know, in both cases, it has a dramatic impact on the landscape. We're talking about across much of the Midwest of this country, turning, you know, a lot of current agricultural land into combined agricultural and wind farms, um, sprinkling solar farms across the Southeast and the mid, mid Atlantic region, pretty much anywhere you can, anywhere you can kind of find an open field. Um, lots of giant solar farms across the West as well. And then offshore wind, you know, blanketing the horizon almost anywhere you look off the northeast coast and maybe with floating offshore wind off the west coast as well. So, you know, this this is going to impact the the landscape uh, for people in ways that when you get to really net zero scale, I don't think people are 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 fully contending with the potential risks in terms of public acceptance. I think there's that. And the other piece is it's not there's a reason why all I think all of these studies end up suggesting that we do that, which is sprinkle a bunch of solar and a bunch of wind all over the country, as opposed to, you know, I'm sure you've seen somebody post one of these images of like, we could power the entire country with this tiny little square of land in the Mojave Desert, right? Which is which is technically true if you just put sol- blanket the Mojave with solar, basically. The reason we don't do that is transmission, right? And the, the, the thing that... Uh, is to me the landscape impacts are real, but that's not the fundamental barrier to me for getting all of this done. It is moving the electricity from the place of generation to the place of consumption, and the the land impacts of transmission, where you have a much even a much harder time citing anything new. Completely agree. I mean, uh, the same studies which show you know that level of of wind and solar deployment and and land consumption for in for you know a net zero scenario end up with something on the order of three times or more than three times the number of megawatt miles which is a wonky term but you know uh, the amount the total capacity of electric transmission in the country and oftentimes those megawatt miles unlike a lot of the transmission capacity today which is mostly intrastate or at least intra-region um you know, this new transmission capacity is going to have to be moving massive amounts of wind and solar among multiple states and between between regions, which historically have just not been good at coordinating and collaborating on all the approvals you need to build that kind of transmission. And if there's one empirical uh, fact of the past decade plus of wind and solar development, it's that 
transmission on that magnitude is incredibly difficult to cite and permit and build, which has been well documented in a lot of places, yeah, including and, and on this books, podcast. Books, you know, Superpower by Russell Gold is a good one to read. <laughs> that just like is a fascinating read and also very depressing about how, about what it takes to build transmission. You know, there's new examples happening all the time. There's what's the most recent one? It's up in your neck of the woods, right? There's like a hydro plant that we're, they're trying to build transmission down to New yes. York or something like that. You're you're in Maine, so it's probably yeah, through you. I'm so yeah. ashamed. What was that one? <laughs> I'm so ashamed of my, my fellow Mainers. Yeah, I think it's the Clean Energy Connect. I think, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but we just had a citizen referendum that, that rejected uh, a transmission line moving through Maine to deliver hydropower to Massachusetts. And, you know, uh, nimbyism is real and it's, it's a stronger force than uh, it's cute little name suggests. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm dismissive of building out a lot more wind and solar capacity. I just think, I think that the market at large and scenario planners for, for net zero are not contending with. Yeah. And there's yet. also a bunch of things that sort of fall out from that ranging from, uh, what can we do if we say we can't build out all of the transmission capacity that we need, but we still can build the wind and solar? So we have enough electricity generation, but we don't have the way to get it to the market that we'd like, which is transmission. There's there's alternatives that sort of start to become more interesting the more you think about that. Yeah, completely agree there as well. And And I think what you're starting to allude to there is probably converting that wind and solar electricity into a form that is easier to move with less impact on the landscape. And that's probably a molecular fuel like hydrogen. So uh, moving energy by pipeline historically, uh, even in, you know, in the past 10 years when there's been a lot of pushback on new natural gas pipeline development in some parts of the country, you know, it's still typically less than three times, often less than five times uh, cheaper or more than five times cheaper to move energy you know, on a, a joules per mile basis in the form of a gas through a pipeline than it is in the form of an electric transmission line. And that's imagining you can actually get an electric transmission line sited and permitted and built and built at all um, compared to pipelines, which historically have been have been easier to do so for. And so I, I you know, I completely do. I, I agree. I really think that one of the highest and best uses for clean hydrogen is as a transmission mechanism where you can go out to these really remote areas where no one's going to going to care as much your your hypothetical Mojave desert example build just incredible amounts of the cheapest possible wind and solar you can forget all about grid connection and and move it via pipeline to big demand centers <music> Speaking of remote locations and the impacts of not being able to build transmission, I mean, the other thing that we've talked about a fair bit is picture a future world where um, there's a bunch of big industrial processes that uh, that need to run. Uh, and most of big industrial processes either want to run you know, on really, really cheap energy or all the time. And imagine what they care about. Imagine they're very energy intensive. And so big portion of the cost comes from the energy cost. And becomes increasingly true that it is difficult to build new transmission. And so we're sort of facing this, this little bit of a crisis in electricity you can imagine coming where intermittency drives really volatile prices. And at the same time, you know, maybe reliability actually starts to be a challenge. We're starting to see this in some places now. There's some other possible things that could happen from that, which could result in 
uh, a couple different shades of on-site generation for industrial processes, either on-grid or off-grid, potentially, which is which is interesting because the sort of initial iteration of like fears around grid defection from utility industry was around like residential solar. But I'm starting to wonder whether it happens in the industrial sector, not actually in the residential sector. That's possible. You know, we're starting to see big new sources of energy demand in the case of data centers, for example, that have some flexibility uh, about, you know, when they run and can run potentially profitably at, you know, a a somewhat lower capacity factor. Um, Go out to these locations where you have super, super cheap wind and solar power. Um, and, And I think that could be just the start of it. You know, it, most of the energy demand in heavy industry is for heat. Uh, it's it's not uh, currently coming in the form of electricity. It's usually from combusting fossil fuel directly on site. But if you do have super, super cheap wind and solar generation, and you have a way of storing that uh, clean energy, that clean electricity in the form of heat, which is what these industrial processes need. And uh, you know, I won't be coy here. We at EIP have an investment in this space in a company called Rondo Energy. Um, you know, you can go to these places with super, super cheap wind and solar and absorb that wind and solar, you know, during the periods of the day when when it's generated and then dispatch it really cost effectively as heat for industrial processes pretty much 24-7, which is when, when in- industrial processes want heat. Um, so it's a clever concept, and it, it's possible it could start driving more industrial load out to the old middle of nowhere. I'm a big believer in a, in this happening in in one of a number of ways. Like I think this is I think this is going to be a big macro trend, and in fact, we've made multiple bets at EIP that can approach this in different ways. You mentioned Rondo. We you know I think if hydrogen ends up being the solution, we've invested in electric hydrogen. In, in some cases, you just build an electrochemical battery that provides. If it if it's extremely cheap and extremely long durations, we invest in form energy, which does that. So I think through some combination of these different options, like we're going to start to see more of this kind of thing happen. But we, I want to talk about land beyond just the context of renewables and transmission, though that's a, a huge part of it. Because as you've pointed out to me, like all the other sort of components of this big decarbonization trend also have land ramifications. So name another one outside of just generating electricity. So the next one is not land itself, but it's under the land. It's it's underground. And uh, I guess, you know, what I've what I've heard it described as is pore space. So we're looking for pores underground that you can put one of two things mostly. Uh, either uh, hydrogen, so either you're um, creating clean hydrogen and then looking for locations underground where you can just store massive quantities of it um, so that hydrogen can be, um, you know, a strategic energy reserve of sorts and also uh, a a very, very long duration storage mechanism potentially for the electricity sector. Um, And then the second thing we're uh, almost certainly going to be putting a bunch of underground in these pores is carbon dioxide. So um, CCS at any significant scale uh, is going to have to be um, sequestering carbon, most likely, um, in geological, permanent geological repositories. Um, And so, you know, when you look at macro analyses of the amount of um, pore space that's available coming from, you know, different types of underground formations, like 
you know, saline deposits, for example. Um, there's plenty of it. I mean, there's just a massive amount of of space to put stuff underground. And in fact, we've been creating more of that space over the past, you know, 150 years by unearthing fossil fuels. But um, the challenge, so the challenge here is not, is not a macro level amount of pore space. It's finding the right places to, to inject these gases underground and also making sure you have the right to put it there. Because the thing about injecting, say, CO2 underground is that once you start putting it underground, it kind of seeps through these pores and it's hard to control exactly where it goes. And you have to make sure you have the right to put CO2 in underground formations under all the landowners that you're, you're putting it under, at least, at least according to the law of the land at the moment. So um, I do think we're going to see um, more competition around securing rights for poor space in strategically rel- uh, relevant areas. Oh yeah, we've definitely already started to see, I mean, there's there's land grabs in both of these areas. If you're looking for salt domes to store hydrogen, there's absolutely a bunch of, I don't know what to call it, but there's a bunch of exploration and there's a land grab around. There, there are only so many of those really big salt domes. Same thing you're starting to see with potential CO2 sequestration sites. So I think undeniably that's going to be, you know, we're not the only ones to recognize that those two two types of storage will have value in the near future and, and people are starting to go after those sites. And actually these things overlap, right? Because, you know, if you assume that we're going to be doing a bunch of direct air capture, which is powered by ultra clean electricity, then actually what you want is a place that has really, really good renewable resources um, and poor space underground where you can, you know, just hook up cheap solar to a, a big DAC machine and then pump the CO2 underground right there. And, and you know, so, though you know, we're starting to see places where you need to look for the overlap of different types of features of the land that will make it really valuable. Right. Okay. So that's underground poor space from a land perspective. Uh, let's let's cover one more under generally underground thing, which is, uh, th- and we've talked about this recently on this podcast, sort of the minerals impact, metals and minerals impact of the energy transition also has land ramifications because of what we're going to need, particularly, well, both in the context of building like transmission and renewables, but also in particular in building batteries. Right. I mean, the energy transition requires two things. It requires more metal and it requires different metal. Um, and the more metal piece is probably less impactful in the long run. I mean, it is uh, it is true, and another obvious thing when you look at you know a wind farm and a solar farm compared to say you know a natural gas uh, power plant that um, it takes more steel, it takes more cement to build uh, a wind farm than it does on on a you know, a normalized basis that the amount of material to produce a gigawatt hour, say, of energy per year, um, you know, we're on the order of probably something like seven or eight times the amount of steel and cement uh, to make a gigawatt hour per year of wind than to make a gigawatt hour per year of natural gas fired power generation. So, you know, there is a there is a significant increase in metals demand there. Um, But from a from a global market standpoint, the the total impact, uh, at least according to the analysis we've done on, say, the steel market, is meaningful and especially maybe meaningful in, in some regional contexts, North America being one of them. But it's kind of marginal in terms of sort of global steel production. Um, and so I don't think that that 
element, the, the just more metals aspect of the energy transition is the big one. I think the big one is something, you know, like you said, you've discussed on, on the pod before, which is the different metals impact. Um, so we're going to need a lot more copper, for example, uh, to electrify vehicles and for uh, generators and wind in uh, in wind power, for for example, um, and then of course there's rarer metals, lithium being the by far most obvious one, um, but also things like cobalt and zinc and nickel, where you know we see in most cases global supply being sufficient to meet the needs of the energy transition, but just an enormous concentration of supply in certain areas that pretty much you know, you can think of as rewriting the rules of global geopolitics. So again, it comes back to land and uh, which land you need and which land is the most valuable, globally speaking. And of course, so far, we have not talked about what I would argue is the biggest sort of land question mark, because it is how we use most of our arable land that humans have developed today, which is uh, for crops, for plants. And that you know, we're going to have a, a very near-term future episode on on biomass and sort of everything you might do with it, and what makes sense to do with it and not to do with it in the context of decarbonization. But it, what I think is interesting about it is is the versatility of so you you grow crops, you can do so many different things with those crops. You can obviously consume them, you can feed them to animals that you then consume, you can turn them directly into energy. Uh, you could, I mean, you could burn them and turn them into energy. You can use them for carbon removal. You can combine those two things and do both of those. You can uh, convert them into bioplastics or into biofuels or like in you know. So the the things you could do with them are sort of endless, but they also require a lot of land. And to your point, photosynthesis is not an not an efficient process from a from a land perspective. And so there are definitely going to be places where the if you're looking at this from like a really high level global systemic perspective, there will be competition for land between amongst multiple uses, either crops versus say electricity generation, or even within crops, crops for usage X versus usage Y, which is what we've done in the, you know, with corn in the U S to we've turned out to, you know, grow a bunch of corn to produce ethanol rather than to produce food. So I feel like that dynamic is going to be, we're going to see that repeated, you know, sort of over and over again in a bunch of different contexts. Ste- yeah. Stepping back for for a second and talking about, you know, use of land for what we used to use land for, which is which is growing biomass for crops and such. Um, a, a fun fact I, I recently looked up and learned. So in my lifetime, um, and, and uh, I'm 38 years old, so, you know, global Human population has has nearly doubled, uh, not not quite, um, but you know I think most people listening would be surprised. You know I don't know Shale, guess how much uh, additional agricultural land on net we've used globally speaking during that time frame when when the global popu- human population is nearly doubled. Like what percentage of additional? Yeah, what percentage? What how much additional? Uh, well, I guess you just the population has doubled, but we've grown more efficient. So let's say like we've increased total cropland by like fifty percent. We we've increased total cropland by zero because we've, we've grown we so much more use, efficient. Yes, on net, the exact same amount of agricultural land, globally speaking, that we used when I when I was born, and that's because not it's two factors. One, we've grown much more efficient. You know, industrial agriculture is spread 
uh, from, you know, industrial economies to more emerging economies, but also we're just throwing fertilizer at the problem. So while the amount of land we use hasn't increased, the amount of fertilizer we use in both nitrogen fertilizer and phosphate-based fertilizer has increased by about that same percentage. So it's about doubled, uh, not quite over that period. So, um, so you know, I, I, I think it's worth thinking about that in the context of um, all of these new potential uses out there for, for biomass in the, at the nexus of energy and carbon that you were describing earlier. Um, and, and I think w- one of the fundamental premises I've come to believe is that I don't think globally speaking, we're going to expand much beyond the, the amount of land that we use today for uh, for the amount of the, the world's photosynthetic potential that we use for for human purposes. I don't think we can if we're going to preserve any measure of of global biodiversity. And you know, I think one of the one of the challenges for lots of biomass pathways for either carbon removal, if you're using photosynthesis to suck up carbon from the atmosphere and then you're disposing of that carbon in some way, or if you're using biomass for energy or some combination of those things in, in the form of what, what's known as BECS, you know, biomass plus ener- biomass energy plus carbon capture and sequestration, um, is, you know, if you're going to do that at really, really globally significant scale, you probably need to dedicate crops to it. You need new dedicated land growing crops for that biomass. And I, you know, jury's still out, right? But I'm skeptical we're going to see that happen. And what that means is actually you have a run not not on new land, but probably a run on what's called what is considered waste biomass. So there is a lot of waste from forestry and from agriculture that today, some of it is just emitted as carbon, whether it's just burned directly or, you know, it, it degrades into carbon plus methane later. And and that waste biomass uh, is much smaller in supply, but very high value when it comes to some of these carbon energy uses. And so, yeah, I, I do think we're going to see a lot more competition for that stuff. All right. So just to wrap up here, back to the big picture, I suppose. Uh, what's your overall view on the degree to which land is going to be a barrier in decarbonization. Like do you think of this as being if you're if you're ranking like the things that are going to stop us from achieving net zero as fast as we need to is land near the top of the list or do you think this is just it's a reshuffling of how we use land but not a big problem. The the two parts that I'm most concerned about are uh constraints on on wind and solar development and the transmission that we know is needed to to make wind and solar happen at at much much larger scale. Um as we said earlier, I, I really just don't believe that the market has digested the public acceptance and siting and environmental permitting <clears throat> risks to to net zero scale renewables and transmission. Um, so that's one of them. And, and that's one of the reasons I believe that renewables are not all we'll ever need for power sector decarbonization. Like I, I do think we need some additional form of very power dense you know, something that can replace coal power from a, from a land use standpoint, um, something on, you know, new, something nuclear-esque, let's say. <laughs> um, and then, then the second area that I'm, I'm concerned about is energy transition metals. So, um, you know, rewriting global politics is complicated and 
um, comes with challenges that we don't we don't fully understand yet. Um, and when it comes to you know the strategic <coughs> location of things like lithium, rare earth metals, all of the processing facilities for those materials to get them into electric vehicles, etc. Um, I think we're going to have some some surprises, let's say, over the next couple decades to come. And and it is something that I worry about being uh, being you know uh, hurdles along the way for the transition. All right, much more to talk about here, but we will save it for a future conversation. Andy, thanks as always for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Shale. Andy Lubershane is the Managing Director of Research at EIP. So what did you think? If you liked the show today, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. This show, as always, is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can find the show on Twitter at at CatalystPod. You can also find me, Postscript, and Canary there too. If you want to know more about today's topic, just head over to canarymedia.com for links and more info on the show. Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across the entire range of sectors, which includes advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza Martinez. I'm Shell Khan, and this is Catalyst.